Bing bong. I am back with another edition of the Sunday Scary Stock Talk podcast, where I'm joined by Nikki Dunn, a certified financial planner at She Talks Finance on Twitter, YouTube, and everywhere else, uh, including Instagram. She puts together a lot, a lot of great content, and she's very, very knowledgeable. She connects very well with people and kind of breaks down the financial topics that might stress you out a bit and, uh, you know, you might need a financial professional for, but, you know, she takes them and makes them into a very, very easy and digestible way. I had a great conversation with her and I learned a lot, so I hope you turn in and you join the conversation, but as always, everything said in this podcast should not be taken as financial advice. I am not a financial planner, so please do not take anything that I say as financial advice. Nikki and I are both having this discussion for entertainment purposes only, and everything we say here should not should not be taken as financial advice, and you should do your own diligence and research. Now, let's get into the show all right, I am back with another edition of the Sunday Scary Stock Talk podcast. But before we get into it, I want to shout out our sponsor, Financial Stock Data at financialstockdata.com, at FSD underscore research on Twitter. Um, be sure to check them out. Use promo code GCI, as in Green Candle Investments, and you can get the first month free. You can go into financialstockdata.com and analyze any stock or ETF that you'd like. Uh, you get all the financial information, background, calculations of various metrics, and anything you really need to dive into the financials of stocks. So be sure to check them out and use promo code GCI. Now let's get into the episode where I'm joined by Nikki Dunn. Or I'm pulling her up right now. Nikki, how are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So we got connected through the stock market pitching game through Common Stock. Um, I think we were kind of like on opposing sides of the bracket, but we both unfortunately didn't make it onto the next round, but I really did love your pitch there. Um, so why don't we get into, uh, you know, I guess back it up to the beginning. So uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and your experience and uh, yeah, how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So I started as a day trader, um, day trading the E-mini futures, day trading stocks after that. And, you know, over the years, I, you know, the market was getting harder and harder, stops were getting run, setups weren't working as well, the algorithms came in. And, you know, really, to be a day trader, it it can be quite difficult. I know some people are doing it successfully, but I just didn't have the patience anymore. And I wanted to not be latched to my computer. So I was fortunate to be introduced by a good friend of mine who ran a hedge fund, Um, His name's Travis, and he taught me fundamental analysis. So basically diving into financial statements and learning how to value companies. And I was like, I was just a technical trader. I I only focused on the charts. I didn't care about earnings. I didn't care about any of that stuff. And um, he kind of showed me this whole new world of fundamental investing. And so I said, okay, I really want to be more longer term, more swing trade style, So I started combining the technicals, which I felt like I got pretty good at, and I combined that with the fundamentals, and I was able to kind of uh, construct a strategy that I'm much, much happier today doing. 
And, um, and also I invest for the long, for long-term as well. Um, you know, passive investing, active investing, and I, uh, am also a certified financial planner. So I've kind of got my hands in a little bit of everything. I'm a, I'm a trader, I'm a financial planner. I, I, uh, specialize in investor psychology and I help traders strengthen their mental game. I was able to develop my own mental strategy when I was learning how to day trade and uh, mastering the emotions that come with, with day trading and with trading and investing in general, no matter what you're buying. Um, so yeah, I've kind of got my hands in a, in a bunch of different buckets. I, I consider myself, I guess, a, a jack of all trades. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And that, that's, that's really interesting. So I think, you know, a lot of uh, financial planners that I hear always kind of talk about, you know, the basic fundamentals and invest for the long term. But you're kind of on the opposite side, or at least like your experience is on the opposite side where you started in day trading. Now, uh, as a financial planner, or, you know, just uh, if you're advising somebody, you know, I come to you and I say, hey, I want to start day trading what would kind of be your message to that right now? Uh, because I feel like, you know, you, you have a little bit more of a different background than, uh, you know, the average financial planner. Yeah, that's a great question. And this is something that I have told people many times. My biggest mistake in my journey of the markets was I started as a day trader. And then I got into investing for the long run. Because that's what everybody does. It's the natural progression. It's like, oh, I mean, think about Wall Street bets and you know the Reddit forums and all of that. Everyone's like, I want to make quick bucks. How do I do that? Oh, I just trade some options or I just you know day trade the market and I can make 10% a day and compound, you know, it's like everybody wants that and they chase that first thinking that's how they're going to get super wealthy. But I think that that's a mistake. I think that the first thing somebody should do is actually master and get invested, not even mastering, just literally get some money invested for the long run, you know, that the money that's going to compound over decades for you, get that working first um, and kind of learn the, learn how the market works. And then once you are maxing out certain types of accounts or you're, you know, contributing enough to certain types of, uh, um, brokerage accounts for longer term goals, uh, like retirement goals. Um, I call it chill retirement. I don't like to call it retirement cause that's not as exciting. So I, I you know, everyone wants to chill out, right? So your chill retirement goals, quote unquote. Um, and then once you have the extra cash flow to dabble into the fun bucket of trading, whether it's options or day trading stocks or whatever it is, then you move towards that. So I did it the wrong way. <laughs> and I tell people to not do it that way, do it the other way, investing first, then the fun bucket, so to, so to speak. I got you. Well, I mean, even though you, you, you say now that you did it the wrong way, do you think that you kind of would have ended up where you're at today without kind of starting where you did? I think that I would have probably compounded my money a little more efficiently, you know, in the beginning because I was so young. And, you know, when I when I started trading, if I was maybe a little bit more focused on that longer term goal, the earlier you start, you can compound so much. You, you put less capital in over time because you're literally compounding at such a young age. So I don't know. It's kind of hard to answer that for sure. But maybe my retirement goals would have been reached sooner, a little bit sooner. Um, but I, I probably, I, I am grateful for the fact that I was able to master um, 
the technicals when I did and I was able to kind of dive into the charts and dive into um, how trading works when I did. But I do wish I was compounding a little sooner for the long run, if that makes sense. Yeah, I got you. It definitely makes sense. So uh, I guess let's take it even like a step farther back. So how did you uh, even hear about investing or day trading or anything along those lines? Uh, Because I think, you know, in a a lot of American households, and I'm not sure if you experienced this where you were talking to clients, but money is kind of a a hush hush topic and maybe not, uh, you know, on, on the forefront of a lot of people's minds. But I think, you know, as a millennial generation and as inflation is kind of, you know, smacking everybody right now, everybody's kind of bringing that money conversation to the forefront and kind of figuring it out on the fly. So did you, uh, you know, have something where, you know, maybe a parent or some a teacher or something along those lines that kind of help you lead you to investing and kind of helping grow your money for the long term? So I definitely did not have, um, I, I grew up not, I grew up actually poor, you know, I didn't grow up with a lot. We had what we needed, but we didn't have, you know, a lot. And, and my journey to towards wanting to be interested in money actually started as a child. Um, unfortunately, I saw bankruptcy, I saw, you know, just poor money decisions. And that actually is what drove me, I think. And then I was very fortunate. When I was in high school, I met who is now my husband, who I, you know, his name is Chris. And um, we run a podcast together. We run businesses together. And um, I was very fortunate to meet him at a young age. And I was already driven in that mindset of, I want to, I want to be successful one day. I I didn't know exactly what I was going to be doing, but I knew I wanted to be successful. And I was always, you know, good in school. And um, I was on that path. And he as well was very much so strong-minded, entrepreneurial, you know, and and he wanted to be a business owner. And so the two of us met very early and we actually kind of came up together in that world. Uh, he would take me to, you know, conferences and uh, he was getting involved in different businesses and I would help him in his businesses. And so it was like, I was very fortunate for that. And he actually got into trading futures. And that's how I got kind of pulled into that whole world because, you know, you got, you know, there aren't a lot of women in this world, right. In the, in the world of trading and, and investing. And during that time, which was so long ago, I was, I was like the only female in the whole entire room of traders at conferences and stuff. And so I was just one of those lucky women that had somebody that got me interested into this this whole entire business. Um, And I know a lot of women don't have that. And a lot of people in general don't have that. Right. And, and so that's kind of been something that I've been very excited to get out there and inspire other women and inspire just other people that, Hey, you can get involved in this too. Like uh, just anybody can learn how to invest in the markets. It's actually not a big secret. Like the world makes it sound it just takes a little bit of of work. Yeah, I agree with you there, and I and I also, you know, I was I'm kind of surprised when I got into this realm too that you know I, I noticed it was mostly male dominated because from my upbringing, uh, you know, my dad's self employed and my mom kind of ran the books and and helped her uh, help my dad on in the back end like that, and uh, 
she was very much the money and, and the numbers person. And when I was, uh, you know, growing up, that's kind of how I got exposed to it was my mom was really pushing to me like, hey, you know, when you start making money, you need to figure out what to do with it, you know, whether it's investing and in, in stock market or real estate or something. And that kind of drove me and gave me that little push to to figure it out for myself. So uh, how is your experience going, you know, with uh, with being, you know, a woman in the industry? Are you feeling like you can reach more uh, reach women a little easier because, you know, it's not you know, necessarily maybe a man talking to them? Or is it, uh, you know, do you kind of have like a mixed client client base? Like, how is the the reaction to that? Or do you even notice a difference? Well, I started She Talks Finance for women specifically. And um, a lot of women, you know, approached me and they were like, do you do investing conferences? Do you do this, that and the other? I would love to learn from a woman. And that's how it all kind of started. Um, but as things have progressed, uh, my audience has definitely been very split between um, men and women. But um, even men enjoy learning from somebody who kind of tries to break it down a little bit. Um, in little and bite-sized pieces that are maybe easier to understand. I think that a lot of teachers in this space, sometimes they can like, you know, spit out the information really quickly. And, you know, a lot of people, you don't realize how, how much people like, you don't know what you don't know. And a lot of people, um, you, we are in finance, very used to jargon, right? It's very quick and easy to, to go straight to the jargon and a lot of people really need things that you wouldn't think explained. And so I tried to do that. And I guess that's what's attracted people to me is um, the fact that I try to explain things and, and uh, somebody that doesn't know anything about it can come to me and, and literally learn from start to finish and start investing or learn how to research an ETF or know what the PE ratio is, you know, something like that. So um, my audience has definitely become a bit more mixed between men and women. And I appreciate that. I, I, I want to be, a I want to be somebody that everybody can, can come to and learn something from. And no matter who it is, I'm here to, to help. Yeah, exactly. Are you kind of noticing a, I guess, a difference in, um, and I guess uh, the, the knowledge of the, the people that come in, have you noticed maybe an uptick of people are kind of more aware uh, as we're kind of running into more of like an inflationary times and things like Wall Street bets and, and other things like investing and maybe cryptocurrency and Bitcoin are kind of to the forefront of, you know, the news and news cycles. And we're seeing massive amounts of volatility. Are you seeing people kind of come now with at least you know, somewhat of a knowledge of, of the stock market opposed to maybe, you know, a few years ago where or, or the pre-COVID days where, you know, it wasn't exactly a, as big of a topic in the news? Absolutely. I mean, it's been it's been pretty amazing because I, I started She Talks Finance right before COVID hit, um, maybe like a year or so before COVID hit. And I, I knew that things were starting to kind of shift. People were women specifically were becoming more invested in money and finance and talking about it with their friends more. But now it's like, I'm amazed at the people that I talk to, as soon as they learn what I do, they have a question about a stock or they have a question about an investment. It's like, oh, wow. Like, I love this. This is fantastic. And I've got my good friends. Um, we've got a, a, a crypto um, group message right now because they're, you know, wanting to get some 
Bitcoin. They they are seeing the sell-off as an opportunity to, to buy some Bitcoin and they've been dabbling in that. And I'm like rooting them on. And I'm like, yes, like this is what it's all about. People, I'm preaching all the time, see sell-offs as opportunities. Don't be afraid of the panics. Bear markets are, you know, times where we need to be in the trenches and doing the work. And and it seems like the people that are close to me are actually listening and they're, you know, taking this as an opportunity um, and they're coming to me and they're saying, hey, Nikki, should I, you know, start doing this? Should I start doing that? And so that to me is very exciting that people years ago would not even be thinking about these things. And now I'm getting, you know, flooded with with people that want to start buying assets that normally wouldn't. It, it, it's great. Yeah, that is great. And you kind of mentioned it already, but uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. So uh, as a as a financial planner, um, you know, I, I told them my parents have one and uh, I kind of brought it up when I first started buying Bitcoin a, a few years ago. And uh, they were like, stay, stay far, far away. Uh, so what is your stance on it? And uh, are you kind of seeing like maybe a shift in the financial planning industry where people are kind of becoming more open to it? Yeah, I mean, advisors are definitely becoming more open to crypto. Um, they're, you know, starting to get more resources and more ways to custody the asset for their clients. And so that's that's good. That's coming online. But there's still a very large percentage of people in the financial industry that don't agree with putting any crypto in a in a portfolio. They are like you're crazy, absolutely not. If you're going to buy it, you need to buy it on your own account. I'm not man, I'm not touching that for you. I'm not advising you to do that. And they're covering their butts because, you know, they have a fiduciary duty to do so. Um but I think uh, you know, for for my viewpoint, I think that if you stick with the quality uh coins that have been that have proven themselves and been around for I mean, I don't want to say a long time because crypto's um, history is so short in the grand scheme of things, but Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? Like those are the two main coins that that if you're going to invest, those are probably the two that you want to keep your allocation closest to. And so I I think that um, what's key, I'm I actually, I'm a mentor in, in a community um, and we have a lot of crypto individuals in there. And you learn that a lot of people have very high allocations to crypto, like scary high allocations. And that's not necessarily something that I support. I think that we should have diversified portfolios within reason. Um, if you're 80% in crypto, you know, you're gonna have a you're gonna have a tough, a tough day during times like these. So um, I think that everything in moderation, utilize diversification. Make sure you, you are aware of your position size of the crypto in relation to your net worth and you'll be OK. Uh, but I'm definitely not against investing in crypto. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, I guess along those lines, you've kind of talked about, you know, diversification and allocation and, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, and that kind of helps, you know, stabilize your portfolio, so to speak. But have you seen, I guess, uh, maybe some more open, openness or, uh, you know, a tendency to, uh, you know, when you're getting these investors who hear the Wall Street bets and, and all these other things where they're seeing them shoot up and down, are you seeing like a kind of a higher, I guess, uh, a high, or a better stomach for to, to stomach a lot of the, these risks and ride the roller coaster up and down and up and down? 
I think that crypto birthed some of the strongest stomachs of steel in terms of risk tolerance that I've ever seen. I mean, the 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 the, the drawdowns that they can handle and be totally okay with it and sit through it is is quite stunning. And I think that um a lot of the those people their first investment was crypto. So they like that's just how they were trained. They were trained that an asset can sell off almost a hundred percent and recover and go even higher. You know, like that's what, that's what Bitcoin specifically has done. It's had uh, retracements that have been, you know, almost all, all of the gains given back. It's, it's wild. So um, yeah, I think people do have a little bit higher risk, risk tolerance, especially those that were birthed investors that were birthed from crypto. Um, and I, uh, but I also think that that's kind of helping people learn that the ups and downs are more normal and that they're able to stomach them more. And now when those investors get involved in other assets, they're probably going to be better off. So um, it's definitely interesting to to see the, the risk tolerance of some of these newer investors. Gen Z is going to have like the craziest risk tolerance. I don't I don't know. <laughs> Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, and we've seen like, you know, a few rug pulls and some other things that maybe people have been exposed to in the crypto realm and, and things like that, that, yeah, you know, maybe they, they get a little skeptical or what. Um, but, you know, you kind of we're, we're all along the lines of volatility. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I haven't been investing for too long. But, uh, you know, when I started investing, uh, you know, the narrative was just put you know, put it into an ETF, the S&P 500, you're going to get, you know, your standard 11% on average return. And then, you know, 2020 came along where they printed a bunch of money and uh, the S&P returned about like 23%, I want to say that year. Um, so are you kind of uh, noticing that, you know, investors are kind of not uh, happy unless you're getting all these giant returns, uh, even though, you know, obviously there, there's a lot more volatility and a lot more swings in the stock market. Um, I think that in a lot of investors right now, especially, you know, younger millennials and Gen Z, like the boomers know what how it goes, right? The boomers have been in it. They know what's going on. Gen X, they, they, same thing. They know what's going on too. Older millennials, we've been through the 2008 financial crisis. We've been through, you know, uh, now another, you know, huge sell-off, the 2020 panic. Uh, a lot of, a lot of investors have never been through like a real, true, grinding, miserable bear market. And so um, I think that it's definitely going to be a wake-up call for, for a lot of them and they need to work on patience they need to uh, because everything has happened so fast, like even in, in crypto, the gains have been fast. The selves have been fast. Um, the most recent bear market has been fast, fast panic, followed by a V bottom and then huge recovery quicker than, you know, you could blink. Right. And I don't think that newer investors really know what really can go down. So I think that there will be some wake up calls if this market continues to kind of behave. It's actually behaving more like a normal market, to be honest. And I think patience is going to be super key. Yeah, exactly. And I think yeah, uh, within the last couple of days, it's starting to almost like stabilize, it seems like. So um, 
you know, when, when you get people that come in and ask you questions more so on the macro environment, how do you, uh, you know, explain it now to, uh, you know, some, I guess, some clients that come in and, you know, they hear the news headlines about inflation, high CPI prints, uh, and maybe even, you know, dealing with a, a war in, in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, how are you kind of explaining how these uh, scenarios and maybe, you know, the overall macro environment affects uh, the underlying stock market. Yeah, I mean, I've done a few videos about this on my YouTube channel. And uh, the fact of the matter is, is we're dealing with high inflation um, and the Fed is raising interest rates to try to battle that inflation. And just the nature of economics is when the Fed raises rates and the risk-free yield increases um, and hopefully inflation, uh, I don't know, we'll see what happens with inflation. But uh, that's going to have people flee um, some safer assets. Uh, they're maybe going to move into more bonds. They're going to move out of equities, which are risk assets. They're going to move out of crypto, which is a risk asset. So um, the main takeaway right now is we know <laughs> we know the Fed is going to continue to raise rates. We know that the market hates uncertainty. We know that we have tons of uncertainty right now, and it's. We know that growth is starting to slow, um, earnings growth. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about basically earnings growth. And we know that um, there are also some counter forces going on, right? We've got a consumer that is still spending, uh, technically, a consumer that still has demand for services and travel after being in lockdown for years and not really being able to travel as freely, um, which could be a counterforce to the slowing growth. Um, we've got unemployment rates at extreme lows. We've got um, job openings at highs. Very, very tight labor market, which basically is counter uh, counteracting the economy possibly going into a recession, right? If people have jobs, if people are, you know, still continuing to have uh, wage wages rise because of the tight labor market, you know, maybe maybe the recession doesn't doesn't fully uh, happen as people are expecting. So the way I'm explaining it to everybody is we have these counter forces in our economy right now, um, and it's very it's got to be one of the most difficult things right now to predict how the market is going to actually re react to this. We know that. Um, the market has room to go lower. So I'm, you know, trying to explain to people you have to prepare for that. If the Fed raises, continues to raise rates, if growth comes in more, you know, there's plenty of downside in the indices and the S&P or the NASDAQ, however you want to measure it. Um, but at the same time, a lot of individual stocks have come in a lot. Valuations have come in a lot. And there's also this individual opportunity that's going on. So it's a very difficult environment to predict on the macro side. And then you throw the Ukraine war into that and supply chains and China shutting down. Um, it's almost impossible. So I'm just trying to explain to people there are the counter forces. There's good, there's bad. And all we know is that rates are probably rising. There is some more possible downside in these markets and to just kind of prepare for that. Yeah, so to prepare for somewhat of some downswings, I guess, too. So um, I guess in, a, in an inflationary and maybe, you know, maybe a down market or a bear market, 
what kind of things are you thinking that you're going to start looking into, uh, you know, as, as far as like companies go when you're looking at financial statements? Because I think, you know, from uh, maybe a, a little bit after the recovery of 2008 until, you know, a, a couple years ago, uh, even through, you know, the beginning part of 2020, a lot of these growth companies uh, that didn't necessarily make money or anything like that. Uh, had easy access to capital with low rates. And you kind of talked about the Fed raising rates already. Um, and, uh, you know, now it, it's uh, they're, they're having to increase, uh, you know, wages across the board and maybe some expenses are increasing. So that deficit that they're having of, you know, spending and getting funding, but not necessarily making money is growing larger. Are you kind of worried about a lot of these, uh, I guess, tech and growth stocks that have, kind of boomed and take off and benefited a lot from, uh, you know, necessarily like easy access to capital? Yeah. And I think that what I'm doing is kind of allowing the market to do what it does and reprice. I think that, um, you know, we've seen a lot of things come in, like we've seen Zoom come in, we've seen even Shopify come in a ton, but like Shopify is still expensive to me, right? Like if I'm going to choose between Shopify and Square, I'm probably going Square. I feel like Square has more value. I know that was your pitch and I voted for you on in the, in the stock pitching game. Um, I actually am very long Square. Uh, it's my largest position in my active portfolio. Um, so I do think that um, margin compression is absolutely a concern. Margins are still elevated from pre-pandemic levels, which is a good thing, but we're definitely starting to see uh, margins come down. Walmart today was a fantastic example of a company that is growing revenues, but they're not as profitable. Profitability is being cut. They cut their um, their guidance for the full year now, so they're not going to be as profitable as they expected even though revenues are growing, but you know, you got to think inflation, right? So uh, revenues are going to look pretty good because things are so expensive. Um, but Walmart, which is a heavy hitter, I, I, I own it myself. I've, I've owned it for years now and they're having issues. So a lot of companies, if they're not willing to raise prices on the consumer, they're going to start to have that problem. And some companies are doing well. I think the opposite of that today was Home Depot. Home Depot, um, I believe, beat across the board. And, and they, you know, some some companies are able to pass these costs through easier than others. I know that, like, um, do you know Corsair? Um, not. So yeah. Can I explain a little bit of their background, too, before you get into it? That'd be great. Yeah. So Corsair basically competes with Logitech. So gaming peripherals, you know, keyboards, mouses um, or mice and, you know, other types of um, things that you can purchase and um, cam different gear for doing um, streaming, live streaming and stuff like that. So they compete with Logitech and they literally said on a conference call, we cannot raise prices because we're trying to gain market share. And if we raise prices, we're going to lose our ability to gain market share. And that's, you know, that's their whole stick right now is they're trying to gain market share against Logitech and, you know, the other big heavy hitters in the industry. So, you know, certain companies are going to be struggling more than others. And that I think is where the investor can pounce and kind of find out who has that pricing power um, marketplaces, you know, they're probably going to do pretty well and have pricing power. Um, and plus as in, you know, inflation rises, 
you're you're take you're going to be taking you know a higher commission to as inflation rises and things get more expensive. So marketplaces are interesting. Um, think things like Etsy, eBay, and um, yeah, the I guess those are probably the two main ones that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, but there are definitely going to be uh, some individual opportunities. You just have to figure out who's who's going to be able to pass on the costs and continue to be profitable. Who's who's not in super amounts of debt that can have free cash flow to sustain, you know, continuing to go forward with their business and not have to run out of money. And those are really the two main things you want to, and, and they're growing revenues. And those are kind of the three main things that when I'm looking at a company, I'm looking at all three of those things to see, okay, is this, is this going to make it? And am I comfortable with this investment? Yeah. So you talked about, uh, I guess, pricing power uh, somewhat because you talked about, um, you know, a little bit about, you know, maybe a little guy kind of competing with the big players. Uh, Are you going to kind of see, or do you think that, you know, in this ever-changing environment that we'll see maybe some, some smaller guys come in and be able to, to undercut the big guys? Um, or do you see it kind of more so that the, uh, you know, big players in a lot of these industries are going to have that pricing power and, you know, that, that brand name that is going to kind of benefit them that maybe the consumer will, you know, spend a little bit more just, just for, you know, the quote unquote better product, even though, you know, they didn't give uh, the other one quite the shot. Well, I do think that consumers are going to start looking for cheaper products, so maybe they won't go with that brand name, whatever, whatever we want to think about, you know, brand name headphones or uh, brand name, maybe they'll go with a Android over an iPhone or something like that. I don't, I don't know. They'll, maybe they'll start to shift their purchasing habits um, and find things that are less expensive, but if if the big guys can't do it, it's going to be hard for the little guys to do it, right? So I don't know. I, I guess that's to be to be determined. But uh, I think that there are going to be consumers that start to to shift behaviors into cheaper products. Yeah, and I think you know a lot of a lot of things we're seeing, maybe even on you know, like the restaurant level, for example. Uh, I don't know how it is where where you're at, but I'm seeing a lot of these smaller local restaurants either having to raise prices or even close down uh, just because, you know, they don't have enough people coming in or they didn't, they're still kind of feeling the after effects from the COVID pandemic. Um, And uh, yeah, just, they aren't being supported as much. And, you know, a lot of them are kind of struggling to get workers and a long list of lines, but uh, at the end of the day, you know, they're not able to combat maybe these increased prices of meat per se, or, or something like that, because uh, they're not purchasing quite in the bulk like a McDonald's is. Um, and so I don't know, from my perspective, it kind of seems like uh, a lot of these big guys are going to have that opportunity to kind of swallow up a lot of these little guys, at least in, in, you know, maybe some, some industries, maybe whether it's tech or, um, or restaurant business or something like that, uh, strictly just because like the increased cost makes it difficult to start a small business and kind of, uh, you know, start on that trajectory up to be able to compete with some of those big players. Um, But one thing that I think is really interesting about what's kind of happened is that a lot of these 
uh, or, or recently there's been a shift of people wanting to start small businesses. Uh, so as a, I guess a financial planner, when, when somebody wants to come to you and say like, Hey, I want to start this business, especially during a time now, how are you kind of, uh, I guess, advising them to, to go about and, and, you know, be prepared for that. Um, are you kind of telling them to have maybe a little bit bigger of a safety fund or something along those lines in order to kind of start along their entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, I mean, it, it obviously depends on the type of business. Someone trying to open a restaurant right now, I'd probably be like, are you sure? <laughs> it better be, you know, a really good business plan and great food. Uh, that's that's a that's a tough one. I mean, that's just a tough business to begin with in terms of, you know, margins and how much work it is. But, uh, you know, there are still I think the entrepreneurial spirit is still alive and well, and I think it's it's very um, good to explore it. And um, I think there are ways that you can do it wisely and kind of bootstrap, prove prove a concept first before you go spending thousands of dollars on a beautiful website and all of this, you know, software and et cetera. I think it's important first and foremost to prove the concept. Um, and then once you do that, uh, I just I just love the idea of bootstrapping a business if you can. Not everybody can do that depending on the business, but um, I love that. And I think that right now um, you just have to be really mindful of your numbers. You have to really know your numbers, know what you can charge, um, know what your cost of goods is going to be. If you have, you know, depending on the business, um, People that are doing creator type businesses and 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 selling courses and um, things like that, you know, that's that's going to be much more approachable than someone going into, like I said, the restaurant business or starting a brick and mortar store. Um, but uh, I, I think that know your numbers, um, understand that bootstrapping, if you can do it, is the way to go. Prove the concept and then jump in with. Um, those that expensive website or whatever it is that you're wanting to do that expensive new uh, machinery or product you that you need to run your business better um, do that once once you can prove that you can make sales gotcha and uh, you know obviously you you're an entrepreneur yourself and and it sounds like you and your husband had some businesses prior to as well uh, does that experience uh, do people kind of come to you because of your experience in that and your realm, or maybe they, they find you because of the content you put out? Uh, is that kind of, uh, I guess, helping you uh, level with, with a lot of these new entrepreneurs or people trying to come in and become an entrepreneur? Yeah, I get a mix of I get a mix of everything. I mean, the person that I can help the most and I actually have a, a, a mentoring program that I designed to kind of help anybody that's either a freelancer or self-employed or a working professional go in and instead of, you know, if you can't, if you don't have access to spend thousands of dollars on a financial plan, you can basically learn everything that you need to know with my mentoring program. And that's kind of what I focus on uh, mostly. And I attract a lot of entrepreneurs. Yes. I attract a lot of um, freelancers that uh, mainly, and these are the people that I can help the most, is the freelancers and entrepreneurs that have absolutely no idea um, how their taxes work or um, how they should save for retirement if they're if they aren't employed at a corporation, right? Um, and a lot of people don't realize how they can 
have a retirement plan for themselves, even if they are self-employed. They can still have a, a, a insurance. They can still um, live a normal life. You know, I remember when I quit corporate America, it was very scary. It was very scary leaving my 401k, leaving my healthcare benefits. And, um, and a lot of people struggle with that, but you can design that for yourself. Um, even if you are self-employed and strategize on taxes even more, it's almost better. Um, you can do so much more with tax strategy if you are a freelancer or self-employed and so, or, a, you know, you run a, a business with employees, whatever the case may be for you. So I think that, um, that is my experience more so in the markets is what seems to attract people to me. Um, but what I try to tell them is making money is only half the battle. You have to plan the money too. You make it and then you plan it. And um, tax strategy, retirement strategies, you know, investment strategies, it all goes hand in hand and you can't really do one without the other. So I try to take that holistic approach. And, and I think that, um, people that go through some of the things that I offer, they see that I put that together for them. That's awesome. Awesome stuff. And so, uh, you know, earlier when, um, you know, we decided that you were going to come on the show, uh, we tweeted out, I think both of us did, and you got quite a few responses and, uh, what you're talking about here with response or with, uh, retirement accounts, um, I think really ties into one of the questions. So you tweeted out, you know, what are some stock and market related topics that you, that, uh, you know, some of your followers would like to discuss. And one of the first one was how do you decide which stocks to put in a tax-free retirement account versus your cash accounts? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I, I, I like to call it uh, tax deferred because it's technically tax deferred unless it's unless it's a Roth account then it's you know you pull out the gains tax free but um, a tax deferred account I love utilizing for trading for like swing trading or shorter term trading and the reason that I do that is because I don't want to deal with paying the taxes and filing the taxes on any gains that I may get from that short term trading because it's taxed you know obviously um, at short term capital gains rates. So I actually focus on, and this is just kind of what I do as a trader, um, someone that's an investor, it's going to be maybe a little bit of a different story. But um, as a trader, I utilize the tax deferred for trading to not have to deal so much with the taxes that comes with that. And then in a taxable account, I focus on long-term capital gains uh, assets. So I want assets that are going to be compounding for many, many years and they're earning dividends. And I'm going to later in life, pull that out of a taxable account and take advantage of long-term capital gains rates, which for anybody that doesn't know, long-term capital gains rates are more favorable and lower than short-term capital gains rates, which are what you're going to get whacked at with if you um, hold something for under a year. So um, that's kind of how I do it. You have to think about tax um, location. It's not just tax uh, strategy, but it's like it's t tax location is what assets do I put where? And so that's a very important question. That's a great question that everybody should be asking themselves. But if you're not trading um, and you're really just kind of investing for the long run either way, I think that um, maybe don't think about it too much. Don't get too obsessed with it. Um, it's more so when you get into Roth versus traditional that it really starts to 
to make a big difference into what assets you put into those types of accounts, if that makes sense. I don't know how deep you'd want to go into that. That's a rabbit hole. <laughs> well, if you if you if you're uh, willing to get down the rabbit hole, then let's do it. Um, so uh, I guess let's get into the Roth versus traditional IRA uh, kind of rabbit hole because um, I think it's I think it's really interesting one and uh, you know two I'm kind of about to run into this uh, scenario where it's uh, you know I got. Uh, a rental property and I got other things now too, where I'm trying to, uh, you know, find some ways to make diversified income. And I don't know if I'm going to be necessarily in like the Roth or that cutoff area, it gets kind of hairy. So I'm, I'm kind of worried on how to approach it myself. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that there's others out there like me. So if you want to get into the traditional and Roth, uh, you know, the differences and kind of how you look at those accounts as well, that'd be great. Yeah, determining um, so a traditional IRA is where you get a tax deduction today and you pay tax later. And then a Roth IRA is where you do not get a tax deduction. You put in post tax money and then it grows and you pull it out tax free, the gains tax free. So a lot of people are attracted to Roth. It's all over TikTok. It's all over all of these platforms. Everybody's like, do a Roth, 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 Roth. Roth is the way to go, Roth. But the fact of the matter is that's that's not always going to be the best choice for, for you. Like if you are in higher tax brackets, um, meaning if your income, you know, your last dollar of income is falling into a lower or a, a, an, a higher tax bracket, then Roth may not make much sense for you. And you may want to just get that tax deduction today and take advantage of that. So um, I think that A, you have to figure out where your tax, where that last dollar of tax uh, last dollar of income is taxed. Figure that out. And, you know, if it's in the higher, you know, few brackets, that's where you might want to be thinking more traditional. If you are in the lower brackets, um, you know, anywhere up to 22 to 24%, that's a pretty attractive tax rate to lock in today. So if you are able to contribute to a Roth, if your income allows, because if you make too much money, you can't contribute to a Roth anyway. So that's out the door. Uh, there's other strategies, but I won't go into those. Um, then, yeah, you, if you're in the lower tax bracket, then you may want to lock in today's tax rate and, and just pay the tax, contribute to a Roth, take advantage of that. Um, but I, I just try to tell people that don't assume one is good over the other, like you've got to look at the full picture and figure out if how important is a tax uh, deduction for you. Because if you want a tax deduction, then you're going to be wanting to think more of the traditional route. And uh, there are so many, like, there are so many landmines with IRAs. It's so funny. People don't realize there are with both traditional and Roth, there are these landmines you have to watch out for. Like if you can't make, you can't make too much money or else you won't even be able to deduct your traditional IRA. So um, just some things to, to be aware of. It's not quite simple. Yeah, and that's what you're the, what you're here for, right? To kind of help people navigate those uh, those waters in the traditional and then the Roth IRA. So, um, uh, another tax question came in uh, from Daniel, and he asked, "Can you discuss the differences of FIFO and the rest of the tax options there is?" And then the follow up is, "Which one is best if you're not going to withdraw money and just trade monthly?" 
Well, just because you don't withdraw money doesn't mean you won't owe taxes on it. So uh, if you're in a taxable account, keep that in mind. And you only really care about uh, different cost uh, basis methods if you're in a taxable account. So if you're in that taxable account and um, you choose, so first in, first out, that's FIFO, first in, first out, last in, first out, um, uh, LIFO. And then um, there are, there's also, you can choose basically specific cost basis where you're kind of picking and choosing which shares you're selling if you can track it properly. And uh, that is a, a much more complex process because you really have to, to be uh, tracking it yourself. Um, it's going to be tough for a, a brokerage to do that. Usually the brokerage is going to offer you, you know, uh, LIFO, FIFO, the, the standards. So Last in, first out is basically like your last share that you sold is going to be the first one that gets sold. Or sorry, the last share that you bought is the first one that gets sold. And um, wait, did I say that right? I always get this confused. Last in, first out is the last share that you bought is the first one you sold. So LIFO is going to give you the lowest gain because it's taking the last share and it's selling it. <laughs> Does that make sense? So, yeah, it makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So, so last in, first out is going to be what gives you the lowest gain. First in, first out is going to give you your height, higher gain. And that's where you're going to get into coins or shares that are probably going to be more in that long term capital gains bracket. So, that's the benefit of selling FIFO because it's, you know, first in, first out, which is going to be longer time frame. And you're going to get the long-term cap gains most likely, um, not always, but so oh, it depends what you're going for. If you're going for the lowest tax that you owe, then um, you may want to go with last in, first out, but that's probably going to be uh, potentially shorter term cap gains. So you just kind of have to see where you're at. And usually there's tax software that um, I know with like, with crypto specifically, there's tax software that'll show you, you know, the differences between uh, all of them. Um, but with stocks, it's a little bit different because your broker is set to choose uh, one or the other. And however you have it set in your brokerage account is like, that's it. Like you can't change it. <laughs> you can't just change it all. Uh, so you have to make sure that it's set the way you want it to before you make that uh, transaction. Gotcha. All right, so we got two more. Um, one, uh, they kind of prefaced it as a newbie question, but uh, for everybody in the audience, there's no newbie questions. I think these all questions are good. If you've got it, I'm sure somebody else is thinking it. But uh, they've always wondered about issuance slash supply. So who sets it? What's it based on? Can it change as a company grows? Uh, an example is like a stock split or, or something along those lines too. So I'm assuming in this case, they're talking about maybe sh supply of shares of a stock. Yeah. And yes, com companies can control, um, they can issue shares. They can raise money, raise uh, cash by issuing more shares of their stock. What that's going to do is it's going to dilute investors because as more shares are issued, you're, you know, the shares that you own are going to become basically a smaller percent percentage of all of the shares that exist uh, for that company, right? So that's called dilution if they keep just adding 
shares. Uh, I'm trying to think of a good example of a company. I mean, Tesla. Tesla issued shares. Uh, AMC is a good a good example. AMC issued during uh, the pandemic like an insane amount of shares. I I I can't remember the exact amount, but the 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 chart was like the share count was like this, and then boom, you know. So uh, AMC was a good example of that, and what that did was that diluted shareholders, which means that the earnings are spread across a lot more shares, and so um, AMC has not hit uh, has not hit the moon yet from last I looked, and a lot of that could have to do with the the fact that there's so much uh, so so many shares in the company. But uh, side side point. So yeah, uh, a company can issue shares and affect their share count or their supply. Gotcha. All right. And then last question, it's more along the lines of macro. Um, So there is stimulus being issued in China versus tightening in the West. Uh, So they want you to talk about, I guess, maybe the, the currency impacts of inflation versus demand destruction. Um, So whether that's, uh, you know, uh, I guess the the battle between the currencies going on right now. Well, yeah, I mean, China's in a very different spot. They are literally, um, yeah, that they. It's just kind of challenging to to imagine that they're still locking down and still choking off their economy um, while we're all trying to get back to normal. But um, uh, inflation is is obviously going to it's going to hurt people and the dollar strengthening right now has a lot to do with the fact that we are raising rates. I mean, if you're going to invest right now, the U S looks pretty darn good. And so that's strengthening the dollar, which in turn can hurt, uh, emerging economies. Right. So it's definitely a challenging environment, but, um, inflation has got to get, under control um, because it's really going to damage the consumer. And speaking about China, I don't, you know, I'm not too plugged into exactly what's going on with that. I I don't follow the data um, as much as I do in the U.S. Uh, But China getting back online and China's economy getting back um, to normal is going to help a lot of U.S. companies because a lot of U.S. companies have China exposure. So we want to see China get back to a regular economy as soon as possible. And I think that that's going to help lift that's going to help lift the global uh, economy, essentially, um, as more countries come back online and and allow their uh, citizens to, to travel. And so um, we need to see more of that to get back to normal. Yeah, I definitely think you're you're nailing it right on the head there is that, you know, we've kind of become a, almost like a global society where, you know, companies across the globe are, are connected in some way, shape or form, uh, you know, whether that's getting semiconductors from Taiwan or, or some other country uh, like China, I know is a big exporter of them as well. Um, and, you know, that uh, that affects businesses all across the United States. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that it, you're nailing it on the head there that, you know, more of these countries, if businesses start to open up and, and be successful, that it's just going to benefit uh, companies around the globe. Well, Nikki, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I really appreciate, you know, you coming out and sharing your wealth of knowledge. Why don't you uh, tell everybody in the crowd, you know, where they can find you and what else you got going on? 
Yeah, so you can find me um, at She Talks Finance, basically across everything. Um, YouTube, definitely subscribe to my YouTube channel. I put out a lot of market uh, macro content and just financial financial planning content for people. Um, and Instagram, Twitter, all at She Talks Finance. And my website is shetalksfinance.com. And also for anybody that um, is interested in podcasts, I am a co-host of a podcast called We Talk Money. So just go to wetalkmoney.com and you can find the podcast there. And it's it's pretty good. It's a, it's a lot of kind of what we did here. So talking about the markets and, and getting into the news. Yeah, awesome stuff. And if it's, yeah, anything like this uh, conversation, I'm sure you should share your knowledge on everything there too. And, it, and it's great. So everybody go check out at She Talks Finance everywhere. And uh, yeah, check out their, their podcast. I'm definitely going to start tuning in and I'm excited for it. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, so Brandon. Do, yeah, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, have a great rest of your day. You too.